0: Good morning, family. Turn to John chapter 4, and I'm going to pray for us. Father, I am I'm grateful that we are forever yours. I'm grateful that you, Jesus, invaded your creation in a way that I can't possibly wrap my brain around. But because of that, because You are willing to live among us and die for us and resurrect from the dead. We can be forever yours. We ask this morning you would stir in us the sense of awe that that should inspire in us. And that as we read your word, as we grow in our ability to pray with you, I pray that you would help us to understand just who you are, who it is that we pray to, what you are capable of, what you have already accomplished, and who we get to be because of you. It's in your precious name that we pray and for the sake of your name that we gather in spirit this morning. Amen. So this morning we are continuing our series on praying the scriptures. We want to be practical, to provide helps, to help uh, each other, to be able to to grow in our ability to pray. It, it it requires a certain degree of practice. It can feel awkward at first. And so we want to be able to provide some practical helps in how to do that. And so in this series, we've been walking through different types of, of scripture. And and in our desire to help you know how to not just read it, but to use it as a source, as a motivation to pray to the Father and, and, and as to, to spark conversation with our Father. So this morning, we're going to learn how to pray through a narrative passage. Right? So a passage that describes events in history that actually took place. And I personally find that not only can you pray these, but, but I find them oftentimes to be the easiest types of passages to pray because they are often the ones that I can relate to the most. So hopefully you will find the same as we walk through John chapter 4. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'm going to read through the whole passage just because I think it's always best to get the whole context before we start going verse by verse. So I'm going to read chapter 4 or much of it and then, and then we will come back and walk through it together. So Jesus and, and his apostles come to a town of Samaria and at this well, Jesus was wearied and from his journey, and so sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And in verse 7, it says, A woman from Samaria came to drink water, or to draw water, rather. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? There's so much in this passage, by the way. There's, there are a dozen different sermons that you could preach from this passage. It's a passage that I use. It's one of my favorite passages, I'll just tell you that. And so it's one that I go to a lot when, when teaching on missions. Uh, it's a great uh, message on both on gender issues and issues of ethnicity as, as Jesus reaches across lines in that regard in extraordinary and beautiful ways. Um, but this morning, that's not where we're going. So it says, um, And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, This woman was not looking for a religious experience. She was actually hoping not to see anyone at all. That's why she came to the well at the worst possible time of day. So she's coming to get water, not to find a Messiah. Yet Jesus met her there anyway. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you aren't tuning in right now in order to meet God. Maybe you're just here to check this off your list. Maybe it's not... Maybe not getting together this morning feels like more of a relief than a disappointment because you didn't really expect to meet Jesus here anyway, so why not stay on your couch, right? Maybe you read the Bible just because you know you should. Or maybe you read the Bible because you hope it will solve your problems or answer hard questions for you. But you certainly don't expect to actually interact with the Holy Spirit in a very tangible way, that he would communicate to you and with you. Maybe you don't read the Bible at all for those very same reasons. But what if you did? What if we woke up in the morning expecting to have a literal, tangible interaction with the living God of the universe? For real, today? What, what if we learned from this woman and simply prayed for Jesus to respond to you and to me in a way that is similar to how he responds to her? I found going through this seven prayers plus a bonus prayer uh, that, that I've been praying for weeks now going through this passage. And I'm not saying that these are the only ones that you can pray in this or even the correct ones. Just simply they are the ones that stuck out to me most plainly. And, and if you downloaded the bulletin this morning, which I hope that you did, because that helps you both sing in corporate worship with us um, but, and, and let you know what's going on, but also uh, it has, I listed these seven prayers on there for you. So the first one is please help me to better understand who you are, Jesus. Number two is please help me to ask better questions. Number three, please give me living water. Number four, please create in me a spring that wells up into eternal life. Number five, please give me prophetic insight into the current state of my heart. Number six, please help me not to divert the conversation away from my own need for change and onto theoretical things that feel more safe. And number seven, please help me to worship you in spirit and in truth. So number one, please help me to understand who you really are. If you knew who it is that is saying to you, Jesus says, because he knows she doesn't understand who it is that she's talking to. And I'm not sure we do either. We say we know who Jesus is, but I am not convinced that we know who Jesus is. I can understand the person who says, I believe Jesus was just a good guy, so I pick a few nuggets that I like and mostly ignore everything else that he said because it's largely irrelevant or wrong. I struggle to understand the person in spite of the fact that I regularly am this person who says, I believe that Jesus is the son of God, God incarnate. And so I pick a few nuggets that I like and mostly ignore everything else because it's basically irrelevant or wrong. The Son of God. God. His Son. God in the flesh. J.B. Phillips writes, The staggering truth must be accepted afresh, that in this vast, mysterious universe, of which we are an almost infinitesimal part, the great mystery whom we call God has visited our planet in person, we become so comfortable with that idea that it has lost the insane enormity and incredible sense of awe that that should generate in us. In Hebrews, a few weeks ago, Jay preached on Hebrews chapter one, and he referenced the radiance Jesus is—the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature—and He upholds the universe. By the word of his power. In Colossians, it says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why? Because in him, the fullness, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. I don't even understand what that means. That is so impossible to comprehend. My 10-year-old, just last week, my 10-year-old Haley asked me, So, so Jesus was a man, right, Dad? Yes. Yes but he's God, right? Right. How does that work? Now, I'm a pastor, so I gave her a very pastorally and theologically brilliant response that sounded something like, right? It's a mystery. And And before you quickly judge me on the grounds that as a pastor I should have a simple explanation for that, or believing that you do have a simple explanation for that and I am lame for not, understand, please, that every analogy or simplistic explanation that we have for either the Trinity or the Incarnation is unhelpfully, if not overtly, heretically wrong. Because it is unlike anything. It is not like an apple or an egg or a man who's a father and a, and a plumber and these things. Those things are all great descriptions of ancient heresies, but have nothing to do with the actual Trinity or the Incarnation. Almost every description from theologians throughout church history is nothing more than a statement of what it isn't. Right? So we say he wasn't born a normal man and then God gave him superpowers. Right? He isn't born. He isn't just a spirit that looks like a man, but is really just an ephemeral spirit. It's not that. We know he's not a Jekyll and Hyde-style split personality or half man and half god. We know that it isn't God operating a man puppet. This is this is the best that theologians throughout church history can come up with. Denials. We know it's not this. We don't. We don't really know what it is because. All that we know it for sure is that he is an unfathomable mystery, unlike absolutely anything ever. And on top of that, the appearance of Jesus physically in historical time and space is only a tiny moment, a tiny glimpse, like a passing comet of what is actually eternally true about who he is, who he has always been, who he will always be. So the only tiny thing that we have to work with, as difficult as that is, is barely scratching the surface. Jesus, please help me to understand who you really are because my understanding of you is hilariously small. I believe when we understand who he really is, we stop picking and choosing what to obey. We stop acting as though his words are suggestions to be considered against culture, to be considered against our own preferences, and we begin to see him as he is, as the author of life, explaining how life and joy and contentment really work in the universe that he created. And as a result, we joyfully surrender to his better way of life and only means of salvation. We trust that he is not only immeasurably smarter than us, but he is also more loving, more just, more kind, and even more fun than us. Because he both defined and is the embodiment of all of those things. He is the pure source from which we get all of our diluted and polluted understanding of those things. And as we grow in our understanding of who he truly is, we also start asking way better questions. The second prayer, please help me to ask better questions. Jesus says, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would ask. So if the Father actually answers our prayer, when he responds to us and answers our prayer to more truly understand who Jesus is, we start asking very different questions. I know more obscure theological questions that ultimately change nothing about how I live and love right now or even eternity no more irrelevant cultural questions or requests for more stuff that will actually distract us from him instead we begin asking questions like how do I get more of you Will you reveal assumptions, habits, fears, desires that are keeping me from experiencing more of you? In which of these options will you get the most glory and your name be made much of? In what way can I love this person the way that you love me? And will you give me living water? So if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would ask and he would give you living water. So the third prayer is, please give me some of this living water. That's her response. She says, please give me some of that. But she still thinks he's talking about water, water. So what in the world does he mean by living water? In Isaiah 12, it says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So it ties to salvation in Isaiah 44. For I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering and my blessings on your descendants. So you've seen it tied to salvation. Here we see it tied to the Holy Spirit of God. In Zechariah 13, On that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So there we see it as a symbol of cleansing us from our sin. And in Jeremiah 2, it says, For my people have committed two evils, for they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So rather than accessing the source, we try to do it our own way. We settle for a jar and rather than the fountain. Right? And, not, and worse than that, we settle for a broken, leaky jar. And then we think, correctly, that our jar is lame. Right? And while God is offering us a fountain, going directly to the source, we keep asking him to help us build another leaky jar. But that is a message for another time. In this context, Jesus is referencing poetic passages, drawing on this idea of living water. He's pointing her back to things that the prophets wrote long ago about the Messiah, What he's essentially telling her is, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for the things that only the Messiah can produce. Salvation, renewal, cleansing from the sting and stain of sin, the spirit of the living God himself. She doesn't get it. And far too often, I don't either. Prayer for, please create in me a spring of eternal life. As Jesus continues to describe this to the, to the woman, he says, The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. A spring, a constant source, continually replenishing. Replenishing what? Eternal life. What on earth does that mean? Makes a difference depending on Whether you think what Jesus means by eternal life. If you think he just means what we often refer to as the afterlife, then it doesn't mean much. But Jesus speaks differently about this eternal life. In the next chapter, in John, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The word has is present tense in the Greek too. It's, it's something that if you were in Christ, you already have this thing. You have it right now. A spring of eternal life, a constantly renewing source of eternal life, real life, the kind of abundant life that Jesus speaks of. Life in the spirit as opposed to life in the flesh, as Paul put it. Life lived with full unlimited access to the unseen reality and all of its resources in contrast to the stuff of our bodily senses that is ultimately destined for dust and ash or as paul says in second corinthians we look not to things that are seen but to things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal no more broken jars dunking our faces right into the fountain and learning how to access this supernatural spring that he has placed within us. Please, Father, create in me a spring welling up in eternal life and help me to learn and know and understand how to access it moment to moment, day in and day out. In verse 16 here we see, in her response to say, please give me some of this living water, Jesus says, sure, go call your husband. And the woman says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you are right in saying, I have no husband. And he lays out truths that he couldn't possibly know about her. And her response is, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Which I find a delightfully simple and hilarious response to that. Oh, you have miraculous knowledge that you couldn't possibly have. There's something different about you, Jesus. The woman is astounded and declares that he is a prophet, not because he knows her future, but because he knows her present. Knowledge that he could not possibly know if it weren't coming directly from the one who sees all and knows the hearts of all. We almost always assume that prophecy means predicting the future. But biblically, the reality is much more often it is God revealing. His supernatural understanding of the current state of hearts and things. Most, the majority of the writing of the prophets are God declaring, I know your heart right now, and it's not what you think it is. This is who you truly are, this is who I truly am, and this is what I am doing. And only then does it go on to say, and if things don't change, then this is what is ultimately going to happen. Or don't worry, I've got this. This is where this eventually ends. But prophecy is much more often about a supernatural understanding of what is currently going on. Father, please reveal to me what is in my heart that I cannot see. Or reveal your correction and care for me by speaking through someone else about my current state. Please help me to see the ways that I think I know who you are, but that my vision is far too limited and my understanding of you far too small. Help me to see how I am living in the flesh rather than in the spirit and ignoring the unseen realities all around me. Help me to see how great you are and how perfectly in control you have all of our circumstances. And when he answers, we then have to choose to respond to rather than run from or ignore how he answers. Because what does the woman do? Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So here's an obscure question about corporate worship that I was wondering about. She wants to change the subject. In Prayer number six, please help me not to divert the conversation away from my own need for change and onto theoretical things that feel more safe. In the Old Testament, when the prophets revealed what was really in the hearts of people, most of the time they responded by beating them up, throwing them out of town, in a ditch, a pit, or a prison, or killing them. So, did not respond well. Right? We prefer a less brutal, but no less personally destructive approach. The tactic of the Samaritan woman, just change the subject. Right? If our father delivers the conviction through a person, we might deflect, right? change the subject off of me and onto you. You said it wrong, so I don't have to listen. You do bad stuff too, so I don't have to listen. You hurt my feelings by bringing this up, so I don't have to listen. Not about me, let's talk about you and how you're doing all this wrong. Or we avoid actual repentance and obedience by keeping it theoretical. Oh, I see that I have sin in this area. I think I'm going to spend some time journaling or processing about what it might look like if I were to ever obey that. Or... That makes me think of a podcast that I was listening to about how people in that other church do this wrong all the time. And in doing that, there goes any chance of actual transformation in my heart and as a result then in my life. Or I just refuse to think about it at all. I don't dwell on it. I don't deflect it. I don't. I just stop thinking about it. The Spirit in His love reveals something unhealthy in me that is robbing me of joy, robbing others of feeling loved by me and God from being glorified through me. And I think, you know, that lawn isn't going to mow itself. I should probably get after that. I change the subject and now I'm safe. But safe from what? Safe from the abundant life in the spirit of the living God that Jesus is offering and trying to lead me towards. Safe from being an instrument of transformation in the lives of the people around me. Safe from experiencing a spring of abundant life welling up inside me. Father, please help me not to divert the conversation away from my own need for change and onto other things that make me feel more safe. Jesus, in his love for this woman, actually honors her deflective question with a legitimate answer. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Please help me to worship you in spirit and in truth. Not in duty or an obligation, not in self-righteousness, not in boredom or guilt or apathy. In spirit, first and foremost. Connecting to the eternal realities that are constantly swarming all around us. And also in truth. This, when we are gathered together as the people of God, should be one of the contexts where those unseen realities crash into the tangible. Right, where we do the stuff together that connects us to the, to the things that are immeasurably greater than stuff. Right, the habits, the practices that we do that connect us with things beyond just our habits and things. The spirit of the living God connects and unites us regardless of how spread apart we are across the city, the county, the country, or the world. Yet we long to experience God's presence in the way that we only can when we are together in person. We make these requests to our Father for ourselves in order to truly know and experience, love, and worship the real Jesus. But we also ask for the sake of others, not just so that I could worship him in spirit and in truth, but because as we experience him, we can't help but share that with others so that they can experience him too. Which is exactly what the Samaritan woman does. She told everyone. And because of her boldness and her passion, because of her experience with Jesus, a city is transformed. So she ran back to tell them. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Please, Father, may our experience of you become a witness of you that leads our families and our neighborhoods to you. Please, Jesus, help us as we read your word to not just skim through it, to, to get through our reading for the day, to not try to gain more knowledge, but to see where are you in the midst of this? How are you moving in this? And where do I want to see you moving in my heart, in my family, in my community, in this world, in the same way? Please, Father, help stir in us these prayers, and countless others as we take time in your word. And please remind us of the truths of your enormous, unimaginable glory as we sing your praise together as your sons and daughters. Amen.